All right. Welcome to another episode of Growing Down. Today we have Eileen Reeve. Uh, she is the National Grassroots Director for the National Popular Vote. Welcome to Growing Down, Eileen. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Would you mind just uh, telling us a little bit about um, the campaign that you're a part of? Yeah. So the National Popular Vote, we advocate for one bill, and that's the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. And this bill would guarantee the presidency to the candidate who receives the most popular votes in all 50 states in DC on election day. So it's already been enacted into law in 16 jurisdictions with a total of 196 electoral votes. So it's a reform that works within the electoral college to achieve a national popular vote. And the bill only goes into effect in all of those respective states when enough other states have signed on to reach 270 electoral votes. And that's because 270 is a majority of the electoral college. That's the number you need to win to become the president. So we replace state laws with new laws that say that their electors are gonna go to the national popular vote winner uh, in order to achieve one person, one vote in our presidential elections. Awesome. Um, so I was sort of reading um, a book recently about this. Um, and I, I guess I'm curious, how, how did you get involved with the campaign? So um, after the 2016 election happened, um, in 2016 is what we refer to as a divergent election, where the national popular vote winner, in this case, Hillary Clinton, was the electoral college loser. Um, so I thought, that's an inequitable system. It should be one person, one vote. And someone smarter than me has already figured out how to make this happen. Um, so I looked it up and I found the organization National Popular Vote. And I thought that they had a really smart, creative way that they were figuring out how to do this. And at that point, 11 states had already signed on. Um, I live in Oregon and I found out that it had been proposed every year for, at that point, I think four legislative sessions. Um, it had passed the House three times at that point, and it had consistently been blocked in the Senate. Um, my background is in grassroots organizing. I've worked in nonprofits my entire career. I was in grad school at the time and uh, had a little bit of extra time on my hands and thought, oh, we can convince this guy. We, we just got to get enough people to show up at the Capitol and lobby, and we can't have this unjust system continue on. Um, so I started a grassroots organization called National Popular Vote Oregon. We um, turned into a grassroots army lobbying for the bill. Thanks to our advocacy in 2017, we got the first ever hearing in the Oregon Senate uh, for our bill. Even though it had passed the House three times, it had never even had a hearing in the Senate. Um, so we got our hearing, but ultimately did not get a vote out of committee. So uh, that was in 2017. And then uh, over the next year and a half, I continued to volunteer. And then when the organization National Popular Vote was getting up ready to prepare for the 2019 legislative session. Um, I came on board to lobby the bill as a staff member. And so I lobbied the bill and then uh, utilized our grassroots organization and kind of paired them together. And we were able to pass the bill, we got through the Senate, we got through the House, and it was signed into law in June of 2019. Wow, and that's awesome. Yeah, and so um, I'm really passionate about this, uh, just on a personal level. It's something I really deeply cared about. And so after the success that we had in Oregon, um, I pivoted. And so now I do that kind of grassroots organizing across the country for national popular vote. So um, doing education, doing training of volunteers to get them out into their communities to talk about this bill. Uh, and to, especially in states that we're hoping to pass the bill in the next couple of years, or really in any state, just to get people riled up about it and let them know that this is something that they can take action on at the state level um, and that they can make a difference and they, they don't have to lobby their, their Congress members to change the system. They can just go to their state capital and ask for this change. So you mentioned earlier a really smart guy, uh, sort of kind of thought of this. Do you have a little bit of background of who that person is? Yeah, so Dr. John Koza uh, is the chairman of National Popular Vote and came up with this bill. He is a computer scientist. 
He uh, is also the inventor of the scratch-off lottery ticket. So he's uh, just a very genius inventor. And uh, he came up with this idea of an interstate compact uh, because an interstate compact is actually also the mechanism that uh, lotteries use to work between states. And so that's a kind of a wonky term, uh, you know, an interstate compact, but it's really just a contract between states. It's a really common thing. States are on, on average in a couple of dozen, uh, whether it's around water rights or um, exchanging driver's license information or making sure that they're sharing information on sex offenders to keep people safe. Um, so it's a common mechanism just that a lot of people don't know about. So he uh, thought that we could apply that mechanism to the Electoral College. Um, so the US Constitution says that uh, in Article 2, Section 1 is where we talk about the Electoral College. And it says, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. And so what most states use right now is what we refer to as winner-take-all laws. Um, so in 48 of our states, whoever gets the most votes on election day in that state gets all of that state's electoral votes. And so what that means, uh, California has 55 electoral votes. So we know way before the election begins, I, I will bet you my all of my stuff and my money right now that the Democratic candidate is going to get California's 55 electoral votes in November. We know that before the campaign starts and so do the candidates. And it's the same thing for on average about 38 states across the country from election to election. We already know how their electoral votes are going to be awarded before the campaign even begins. And so um, we a lot of people think that that's in the Constitution, this mechanism, but it's not. The Constitution just says that states should decide how they want to vote in the Electoral College. So the system that we have now, those winner-take-all laws, is what leads to candidates campaigning in just certain parts of the country. And, um, and it really impacts how our elections are held, and it can also lead to these divergent elections. So um, just taking it back to the Constitution, we utilize that part and say, hey, state legislatures, it doesn't have to be this way. You can change your state law so that your electors go to the winner of the national popular vote. Um, but again, we know that people aren't going to want to take that leap and just do that off the bat, um, but on their own. So that's why it has this kicker that the bill only goes into effect when enough states have come together that it would guarantee the presidency to the winner of the national popular vote. So John Cosa came up with that in 2005, uh, worked with a whole team of lawyers on pulling the bill together, uh, worked with our president, Barry Fatum. Um, and uh, so that was 15 years ago now, and they've been lobbying this bill uh, ever since. And now we're over 70% of the way towards enactment uh, because changing the way you elect the president is not something that's done in a year or two. Uh, it takes time. And uh, that longevity also points to the fact that our initiative is not a reaction to any particular election, especially the 2016 election. Uh, we were working on this about a decade before Donald Trump uh, won the 2016 election in this way. And we're motivated just by the fact that it should be one person, one vote. And whoever gets the most votes wins, regardless of what political party that candidate may belong to. Right. So a couple questions. Um, the first one is, how would this change campaigning from how it is now? And I was reading one of the potential drawbacks of abolishing the Electoral College would be that politicians would only campaign in major metropolitan areas and the needs of like smaller rural communities would kind of be like neglected. What is your thought or response to that? And maybe give us a larger picture of how campaigning could change. Yeah. Um, so right now, we know that candidates go just to swing states. You know, for this election, they're going to be going to Pennsylvania, Florida, Michigan, North Carolina. There's a reason the Republican uh, convention is in North Carolina and that the Democratic convention is in Wisconsin. Um, so they just go to states where they, the vote is going to be closely divided and the electoral votes could be either way. So under a national popular vote, we know that candidates would go all over the country because every vote would, wherever it was cast would be equal. Even if it was cast in rural America or in Los Angeles, 
every vote would have the same equal weight. And that's not something that you just kind of have to take our word for. We can look at how candidates campaign within places where the, every vote is equal. So that's within battleground states. Within a battleground state, every vote could make the difference to uh, making that candidate be able to win the electoral votes for that state. And when you look at that, there is no tendency. We've looked at data for the last uh, three presidential elections within how candidates campaigned in swing states. And there's no tendency for them to overemphasize metropolitan areas. You see that they equally go all over the country. Um, as an example, if you look at the state of Ohio in 2012, Ohio has 16 congressional districts. We know that congressional districts have to be uh, of roughly equal population. And so if you break those congressional districts up into kind of four quarters, so a clump of four here uh, and you know four all together so for all 16 congressional districts um, and you look at the general election campaign events uh, two of the quarters had 18 campaign events one had 19 and one had 17. now if you thought that candidates were going to just go to metropolitan areas you would have seen all of those events just in columbus and just in cleveland but that's not what happened they went all over the state asking for votes because they knew that every vote can make a difference wherever it was cast in the state. Similarly, uh, you can look at gubernatorial races. Candidates don't just go to the big cities. They know they have to go all over in order to appeal to voters. Um, and I think that some of this stems from people thinking that cities are a lot bigger than they actually are and not necessarily having a good sense of the numbers around where people live across the country. So if you look at the 100 largest cities in America and you add all of them up, so using the 2010 census data, that makes up 19% of the US population. Number 100 on that list is Spokane, Washington with 208,000 people, not exactly a giant liberal metropolis, right? But those 100 cities are 19% of the US population. Coincidentally, Rural America, as defined by the U.S. Census, also makes up 19% of the U.S. population. So you have an equal portion of people that are living in cities as you do in rural America. And so what that means when candidates are campaigning, they can't just go to L.A. and New York, and they can't even just go to the 100 largest cities and expect to be able to win the election any more than they could just campaign in rural areas and expect to win. They have to go everywhere, and especially going to the suburbs. That 62% of America that lives in between cities and rural areas is evenly divided between Democrats and Republicans. So there's a lot of like knee-jerk reactions that people make thinking, oh, they're just going to go to New York. They're just going to go to California. I live in Oregon. They're never going to come here. And that's just not true. We have, you know, five congressional districts here. Uh, we're probably going to get a sixth in the next election because our, our population is growing here, or not in the next election, excuse me, after the next uh, census, because our population is growing. And so I would expect that you would see five or six uh, general election campaign events in a state like Oregon from both political parties, because candidates know my vote here is just as valuable and worth just as much as someone in Dallas or Los Angeles or in Frederick, Maryland. That's a, that's a great answer. I'm wondering if we can even press this further and think about how this could change maybe even policy or just the national conversation and our yeah. consciousness of politics. Can you just, riff? it looks like you have a riff on that ready. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about how policy is impacted now by the, this battleground state problem, if you will. Um, so if you uh, look at federal grants, so there's this book called Presidential Pork. Um, it was the doctoral dissertation of Dr. John Hudak, who is now a fellow at the Brookings Institute. And he studied uh, the tendency of the White House to essentially favorite, uh, show favoritism to swing states. So overall, controlling for variables like state size and natural disaster relief funds presidential election swing states received 7.6% more federal grant money than safe states and about 5.7% uh, 
overall more grants between 1996 and 2008. And so that might sound like a small amount, but this equates to a huge amount of money. So as an example, if Tennessee had been a swing state in 2008 for the 2008 election, the year beforehand, they likely would have received 300 more federal grants for a total of $60 million. And so you see this favoritism for, in this case, federal funding going to swing states. But we also know that the same thing happens with policy. I mean, you let's talk about No Child Left Behind. No Child Left Behind was the largest federal action or intrusion, however you and your political preferences might look at it, of the federal government into state-run programs in the history of our country. That is not something that you expect from a Republican candidate for president. That is something you expect from someone who needs to win over suburban moms in the state of Ohio. When that bill was signed, it was signed in the Cincinnati suburbs. And after the fact, swing states were twice as likely to get exemptions from No Child Left Behind as safe states. So, and this isn't something that just one candidate uh, does. It's they, you know, they all do it. Um, similarly, in 2012, a re-election year, um, President Obama had a program for uh, an energy tax credit program um, and let me make sure I get the stat right. Yeah, so it's, it was an, um, sorry, I got a little tongue-tied here, uh, an energy uh, tax credit program. And Ohio companies got nearly four times the national average that other safe states did. So, or excuse me, than any other state. And Ohio was a key state to win in 2012. And so you just, there's many examples of this where policy is crafted, like Medicare Part D to win over uh, older voters in Florida. That's not how policy should be made. Policy should be made because it's what's best for Americans and it's what's best for a majority of them, that people can get behind a candidate and vote for them, knowing that they have the best interests of the entire country at their heart. And, um, you know, Washington, Oregon, and California, we already know how that all of those are going to go to the Democratic candidate. And so the entire West Coast is completely ignored in these kind of policy discussions when it comes to having favoritism from presidential candidates. Uh, and when, really, when you look at the map of where the swing states are, most of the South is ignored, most of the Midwest, and most of the Northeast as well. It just happens to be a few states. And so um, we'd see policy that uh, you know, would be with the best interest of more Americans in mind and wouldn't necessarily be so hyper-targeted to certain uh, subgroups and special interest groups. Eileen, so I have a question for you, kind of, and we can kind of make this into kind of a, a political nerd class here, but so my question with the Electoral College, one of the questions I had was, so last, in 2016, um, 10 electors broke sort of from their bound and my their bound vote. So what I what I read was um, I think uh, three were put invalid. Trump lost two. Clinton lost five. And I think some this might be going into the Supreme Court. But my question is, can electors switch to anyone? Uh, well, I can't actually really answer that because it did go to the Supreme Court. Uh, they, they heard it a few weeks ago and uh, we'll be issuing a decision later this month. So you, you got to call RBG or some uh, Supreme Court okay. justices. But uh, I can kind of explain that more broadly, uh, yeah. if you like, around the issue of faithless electors. Um, yeah. So uh, a faithless elector is the term that we use for people who... Uh, were expected or pledged to vote for a candidate from one political party, but voted in another way. And so a lot of people, they might not know how actually these electors are chosen. So um, it's not, you know, if I were an elector in Oregon, it's not, okay, I'm an elector and I'm going to go cast my ballot. And my only job is to cast my ballot for whoever gets the most votes in my state. That's not how it works. Political parties from each side nominate a slate of electors for every election. So when, uh, you know, in 2016, when certain states in Colorado and Washington are where some of the people that were faithless electors uh, lived, 
they were Democratic Party activists. They were nominated by their Democratic Party to vote for the Democratic candidate. And so when they went and uh, cast their ballot for someone else, in one case, they were replaced um, and not allowed to cast their ballot. In another, they were told they would be fined if they didn't. Um, and so they ended up, you know, casting their ballot uh, for Hillary Clinton anyway. But it's not, you know, that under a national popular vote, people would be expected to vote for someone of the opposite party because they got more votes. Um, you know, you are a proud member of your party in these instances and happy to vote as an elector. And so the, the question before the Supreme Court is, what does that part of the Constitution really mean when we say each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors? Does that mean a state can say, no, 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 you were bound to vote for the Democratic candidate. You have to cast your ballot for the Democratic candidate because that's what we expected when millions of people went out and cast their ballots on election day? Or are you able to exercise your own independent thinking and judgment and decide who you think you should cast your ballot for? Um, so that will be, I think we'll have a decision on that uh, later in the month of June from the Supreme Court. Uh, and definitely, you know, will be decided ahead of the 2020 election. So I think it's about uh, 33 states that have laws that bind electors. Um, and we saw it in 2016, there was a very high number. It was the most that had ever happened during an election of people that were faithless electors for the presidential candidate. Um, but what's important to note is that they knew when they cast those ballots faithlessly that it didn't have the ability to impact the outcome of the president. They knew that Donald Trump's electoral vote count was, he had such a lead that their one or two or 10 votes going a certain other way wasn't going to change the outcome. Um, so that's a term we kind of, like a political science term we call as grandstanding uh, faithless electors, that they know that that is not going to have the opportunity to change the outcome. There's only been one time in the history of our country that a faithless elector might have thought that his faithless vote uh, had the opportunity to change the outcome of the election, and that was back in the 1700s. Okay. So you started off this podcast sort of talking about uh, democracy and the legitimacy of it. Um, is that sort of your guys' angle that this is sort of an anti-democratic sort of uh, proposal or system? Um, well, our, our angle is that it should be one person, one vote, and that whoever gets the most votes should win. That's how almost every other election in this country uh, is ran, and that's how we select our leaders. And we think that there's legitimacy to that. We think that when millions of people are going out and casting their ballots on election day, that whoever gets more votes should become the president. You know, I, I think that there's an argument to be made that when a candidate ascends to the White House without a majority of voters behind them, that they don't have a mandate from the people in the same way that they would have if they had won a majority of votes. And that that really calls into questions the legitimacy of the presidency. Not We're not saying that that's not a legitimate way. We absolutely, that is the way that the state laws and the, the and the constitution is now, and that's the way that we have to run these elections, absolutely. Um, but I think the masses of people are saying, hey, wait a minute, every other election, when I vote for governor, senator, state legislator, city council, the dog catcher, whoever gets the most votes wins. How is it not that way in the when we vote for president? And so I, I think that it's something that uh, is a it's a time a reform whose time has come. Yeah, I, my understanding of uh, this movement is that it's like a nonpartisan movement. But I'm wondering, do you get a lot of pushback from conservatives or how, how are the, you know, in terms of people's party affiliation, how is that reflected in the support for the movement? Yeah, um, so we are a nonpartisan organization and it's a nonpartisan bill. Uh, and I like to say we suffer from and uh, benefit from bipartisan support and bipartisan opposition. Um, so uh, there, there is no denying the fact that since the 2016 election, this 
has taken on a, a more partisan framing, not from us, but just in the media and the majority of people that are supporting it um, tend to be slightly center left. Um, and so, but when it comes down to it, you know, our bill uh, has been in, endorsed by over 3,000 uh, legislators in all 50 states. Um, we've been endorsed by the Conservative Party of New York and passed through uh, the Republican-held chamber there. We've passed through chambers in Oklahoma and Arizona, North Carolina, um, and even Arkansas. And so it's something that right now it feels more partisan um, and there's certainly people kind of lining up on both sides but our team is half republican and half democrats um, we go across the country and talk to legislators and try and get them on board with this and you know i think if it were something that was truly partisan in 2017 after the the last divergent election you would have seen uh, you know a whole host of blue states passing this bill right that's what you would have expected not a single state passed the bill in 2017, uh, probably because a lot of them were concerned that it would look partisan and, and didn't want that framing. Um, in my state of Oregon, you know, I, I shared at the beginning how I lobbied for this bill here. Um, it was a Democrat. A, the Democratic Senate president was blocking this bill for a decade. Uh, and ultimately, in the Oregon Senate, when we finally got it through, Three Democrats voted against it, and two Republicans were the reason that we passed the bill. They were the margin that made sure that we were able to pass this bill uh, eventually. So uh, it might be something that, yes, more Democrats support, but it shouldn't be that way. This is something that makes every vote equal. It's rooted in, in that nonpartisan belief. Whoever gets the most votes should win. And it doesn't matter if some people might think it might benefit their political party in the short term. That doesn't matter. That's not what this is about. I, it doesn't matter who it benefits in the short term. What matters here is making sure that every vote is equal for our future elections, because that's something that we just, we absolutely, I think, have to achieve uh, in order to have the country sort of come together a little bit and, and uh, be able to believe that when you advocate for an idea and you get a majority of Americans to agree with you, that that is, is going to help enact change. Mm. And in terms of the the type of pushback you get from Democrats and Republicans. Do you, do you get the sense that like the Democrats, for example, have a specific line of pushback or, or is, are they just, is there's no party correlation between the, the, what people are concerned about? Yeah. Um, I think that some people who are opposed to it, uh, say, Hey, my political party is benefiting from the system as it is now. And I don't want to change that. Um, I don't believe that that is what should motivate legislators to take action or not take action on a bill personally. Um, and so, uh, and on the flip side, I think a lot of it stems from not understanding it and, you know, hesitancy to change. We are asking state legislature, legislators to vote on something that they've never voted on before uh, in most states, not just, hey, vote for our bill, but hey, utilize the power in Article 2, Section 1 of the U.S. Constitution to change how you vote in the Electoral College. Most states have been using their current method for decades, if not, you know, over 100 years. Uh, there are some exceptions. Massachusetts has changed their method of awarding electors 11 times. Uh, but for the most part, states have been doing this for a long time, and state legislators are, are hesitant to, to take that leap. Um, so sometimes it takes a couple of, of sessions to get our bill passed, and that's okay. We continue to do the education to say, hey, this isn't a scary thing. This is something that's totally within your power to do. Um, I, I do think that there is sometimes, you know, we get a conversation around if abolishing the electoral college would be the more appropriate path um, from people on both sides. And we just, you know, we, we don't agree with that. That's, there's two ways to achieve a national popular vote for president. Uh, the way that we are advocating for has, is already 70% of the way towards enactment um, and is something that we have bipartisan support for. Uh, and especially because something that state legislators like is that, you know, if, and this is a huge, 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 huge if, if for some reason we, the country decides, actually, we liked the old system better. We, we don't like this national popular vote for president. I don't think this will happen, but let's say if. 
the states are able to withdraw from the compact. Uh, and if it goes below 270, then they can continue to choose to allocate, or excuse me, to award their electors the old way or in a different way. Um, they reserve that power of the states. And so that's something that I think um, definitely lends to some people, uh, uh, you know, it being having more bipartisan support, uh, that the state power is preserved. Uh, whereas under abolishing the electoral college, once you do that, that's it, it's a constitutional amendment and you would need a constitutional amendment to change it back. How easy would it be for the states to back out of that if they wanted to? Um, so it would be the same way that they enter into the compact. They pass a state law um, saying that they want to replace the national popular vote bill with another way of awarding electors. Um, there is a six month blackout period uh, during which states cannot withdraw. So the 270 minimum that we need has to be in effect by July 20th of an election year. That's in the language of our bill. Um, and that's a specific date for a reason. That, so between July 20th and six months later, January 20th, it's inauguration day, states cannot withdraw during that time. Um, that covers when the conventions meet and officially nominate their candidates, covers the entire general campaign, when you and I cast our ballots, it covers the day in December when electors go and vote, and when Congress counts the, the electoral votes uh, and officially um, counts the votes for president. And so the reason that for that blackout period is so that a state couldn't say, a big state, say like California, if they were able to withdraw during that period and bring us below the 270 electoral vote threshold, well, that would throw the campaign into chaos if you know you've been campaigning under a national popular vote for three months and then a state was able to say oh actually we're going to go back to the old system so that's not allowed um, and that's not enforced by our organization or even our state governors or our senators it's enforced by the impairments clause of the u.s constitution and the united states supreme court no state has ever able been to has ever been able to withdraw from an interstate compact without adhering to the terms of that compact. Um, so there's no gaming of the system there. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just important to note that if they did, you know, decide they're going to withdraw from it, um, they can withdraw themselves. But, you know, if it's a smaller state and it doesn't bring uh, the vote, the total amount uh, committed to the compact below 270, all of the other states still, you, you know, have it in effect and the national popular vote winner still becomes the president. Um, so it's just if your state, you're only able to withdraw your state um, and not necessarily say, oh, the whole thing is in effect because a small state withdrew from it. That's not how it works. Um, go ahead, Ryan. Oh, I was just going to ask, um, what, what states, I would, or I would assume that the, the battleground states would be most resistant to this? Or, 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 or do you see trends in terms of like which states are, are most excited about this and which ones are like, no way? Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, there is no denying the fact that if you, you look at the states that have passed this so far, they're what you would traditionally consider more blue states. Um, so Colorado, uh, it signed it in 2019. Um, that's a very purpley state and was a battleground state in 2016. Um, and uh, we, you know, are hoping to be advocating for this in any state that hasn't passed it yet, really, but certainly in battleground states. And I think, you know, when we're talking to legislators or individuals in those states, they say, well, why would I want to give up? this great advantage that I have. I get to help influence federal policy. I have, you know, the ear of the president. We get more federal grants. This is a great thing. Well, sure, it's great for you right now, but being a battleground state is fleeting. There is no guarantee that you're gonna be a battleground state in the future. You know, Virginia was a battleground state in 2016 and no one is talking about going to Virginia now. Um, so, when we, we're talking to those folks, got to remember that this is something that, okay, yeah, you happen to be closely divided in an election year, but you might not be next election, and you're probably likely not going to be in, you know, two or three more elections. And you really want to rely on a system and keep a system because it benefits you in the short term and could really screw you over in the long term uh, when you become one of those 38 states that's completely ignored in the general election. And no one's asking what you think anymore about these uh, issues because you no longer make a difference within the Electoral College. 
How much do you educate people on the entire history of sort of, uh, I mean, the Constitution and then how it's played out over time in the U.S. history? Um, so when speaking with legislators, uh, we, we definitely, you know, give that history uh, when, when it's needed, um, especially if it comes up and people ask about it. Um, when I personally, you know, I do a lot of our, our education of, of uh, voters and potential advocates um, and citizens. And, you know, I dive into it a, a little bit and say, you know, for example, you know, because a lot of people think that winner take all laws are in the Constitution and they're not. But, uh, you know, in the first election for president, uh, only a few states even allowed their citizens to vote for president at all. And in the uh, fourth election for president uh, is when states started to use the winner take all law for the first time. And it wasn't until our 10th election for president that uh, a majority of states used this winner take all law. That is now the commonly used law today by 48 of our states in DC. And so um, I, I bring it back to that for people and say, this isn't the system that the framers of the constitution designed. They were most, all of them were dead for 30 years before the system that we have now became into place. Um, so I focus on that uh, as far as the, the really deep dive historical nitty gritty uh, is not my particular specialty, um, but we do have members of our team uh, who are uh, legislators and, and do, uh, former legislators and do more of that speaking to legislators who can dive into that kind of stuff a little bit more. Can you explain a little bit um, about the winner take all and, and sort of why that's such a big deal as far as maybe even increasing the polarization as far as not equally representing everyone in your state? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that people, if you're in the minority party in your state um, when it comes to the presidential election, you have the most incentive to want a national popular vote for president. Because, you know, currently, if you're a Republican in California, there were four and a half million people that voted for Donald Trump in California in the 2016 election, but their voices weren't heard. They were essentially tossed out at the state line and said, nope, sorry, too bad. You didn't get the most uh, people in the state to agree with you, so your votes don't really count towards anything. Um, versus under a national popular vote, you'd add up those four and a half million uh, Californian votes with the many millions of votes that were cast for Donald Trump in Texas. Same thing in Texas, the 3.8 million people that voted for Hillary Clinton, their votes would be cast up with the other, you know, 100 plus million or um, millions of people that voted for her across the country. And so um, I think this is especially true if you, if you look at some areas like Virginia, uh, the rural voters of Virginia they have a lot more in common with the rural voters of Tennessee than they do uh, with the more liberal voters in the DC metropolitan area. And so you're able to kind of dissolve those state lines a little bit and work across state lines uh, to be able to advocate for policies that are important to you. Um, and so it's not just, okay, what do the coal miners in Pennsylvania want? What do the car manufacturers in the swing state want? What's important to the people in Florida? It's Okay, yeah, the people in Florida's voices are important uh, because they have 29 electoral votes. Absolutely, that's a big portion of our country, but they're not all monolithic. There's a lot of diverse opinions in there. There's people registered across the political spectrum, and they shouldn't just have to line up with other people in their state to make a difference. They should be able to call up their friends in Hawaii and Alaska and Wyoming and say, hey, what do you think about this issue? We should we should come together on this issue because you and I agree on this, and we should, maybe we could get enough people to agree on it too that the president's going to pay attention and it's going to become something that we talk about on the national scale that would never have been talked about before uh, because it wasn't something that was critical in a swing state. That's great, and it also I imagine it would drive a more voter turnout, right? Because a lot of people are like, well, I live in California, I'm a Republican, we're going to go blue anyway, so why even? participate, right? Exactly. Um, uh, so I think that there's there's two things to keep in mind there. So absolutely, especially, it, you know, if you're on the West Coast or if you're in Hawaii or Alaska, why the time, you know, you get off work and you're going to maybe cast your ballot, the election might be over. It might have already been decided. 
and you, because you know how your state is going to go, you say, Ugh, I don't, you know, I'm not going to go vote. Personally, I'm a big advocate that down ballot races are critically important and we should all vote in every election and on every race. Um, but people say, ah, nope, I've got to go pick up my kids. I got to get them from daycare. I got to make dinner. The, the presidential election's already decided. I'm, I'm not going to go and vote. Um, so that suppresses the vote. And we, uh, Fair Vote is an organization that uh, looks at this kind of data around presidential elections as well. Um, and they found that voter turnout in swing states is between 9 and 11% higher than in safe states. Um, so imagine across the country, you know, 10% more people voting. That'd be great. Um, you know, there might even, it might even be higher than that because once people start to realize, wow, I, I could really make a difference. Because, uh, you know, people might not know they're in a swing state one year. They probably will because they're going to be inundated with lots of TV and media ads, but maybe they're not as well informed uh, and, you know, don't have the capacity to be paying that close of attention that they happen to be in a swing state that year. Um, but overall, if you know, oh, my vote can make the difference, my vote, even in Hawaii, is going to be added up with all the other votes across the country and could determine the outcome of the presidency, that's worth showing up for. That's great. That's great. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us about some mainstream political figures who you think have either already adopted this or are most willing to. And I know that someone like Elizabeth Warren, if I'm not mistaken, was talking about abolishing the Electoral College in her 2020 campaign. Uh, do you know of any voices we should be on the lookout for? Um, yeah, so there are many people uh, who are running for president uh, in the Democratic primary who support both abolishing the Electoral College as well as the National Popular Vote Compact. Um, so, you know, it's a little bit of a nuanced difference there since we're not advocating for abolishing the Electoral College. Um, but yeah, a, a Common Cause did a survey of presidential candidates back in August um, seeking their opinions specifically on if they support uh, reforming the Electoral College uh, through adoption of the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. Um, Bernie Sanders said yes, Pete Buttigieg uh, said yes, and has talked about the National Popular Vote Compact uh, you know, at the national level. Um, Elizabeth Warren, so there's, there's a lot of people at that uh, federal level uh, who certainly who are running for president. Um, Stacey Abrams was a uh, sponsor of our bill when she was in the Georgia legislature. Um, so there's, there's definitely people that are uh, in support of it across the country. Um, Michael Steele, the former Lieutenant Governor of Maryland and former Republican uh, committee chairman is a supporter of our bill. Um, so we, we you know, have supporters on both sides, but it certainly was talked about more on the national level from the democratic lens. That's great. That's great. Um, and I'm just wondering, I don't really know how the kind of the back door or, you know, the lobbying and the talking, having like private meetings with uh, legislators. So I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm curious if you can kind of paint a picture of how that process works. Like if you're going to talk to a legislator about this, do you like send them an email and make, make have a meeting with them? Like how does this, how does this all work behind the scenes? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, what I'll say is what I'm about to say applies to anyone because, you know, just because someone happens to be a lobbyist, doesn't mean that they should have more access. Everyone, you know, you're a constituent of several layers of legislators. You as an individual can go to your state capitol uh, and lobby for a bill that you believe in. Um, and I, I think that people, I hope, do that more. So, um, yes, when I go, um, I would drive down to Salem, um, the, the state capitol, um, or we go to state capitals around the country. Um, and ask for meetings of legislators. So yeah, you send them an email, you call their, um, their office and say that you wanna talk about an issue and ask for uh, the opportunity to sit down with them. Sometimes you get five minutes, sometimes you get an hour. Um, you know, it really depends uh, on how engaged they are and how much they might initially think that this is a good idea or how much background they might have on it already. Um, and we, we explain the mechanisms of the bill. Uh, we have, over a thousand page book. It's really a tome, it's a textbook called Every Vote Equal that was written by uh, National Popular Vote. We provide a copy of this to every legislator um, because it's, uh, it has the answers to many, many of the questions that they might come up with. Um, honestly, the bulk of the book is chapter nine, which is set up as a question and answer 
uh, format, and we have over, uh, we have 133 of the questions that we've gotten the most from legislators covered in there uh, in pretty big detail, which is why it's over a thousand pages. Um, this is also available on our website, which especially uh, as time goes on is what we're more likely often to link legislators to is, hey, here's the quick answer from our book on that. Um, and we, you know, we tell them that this is what's best for their constituents because, uh, it, you know, it's a power that they have as state legislators. But, you know, when they look at their, uh, around their district, one person, one vote is how they were elected. It's probably how, you know, people in their district want to be represented. I think that regardless of your political party, you can make, not everyone, but a lot of people are going to agree that whoever gets the most votes should win and that it causes problems and, you know, a bit of unrest across the country uh, when the second place candidate ascends to the presidency. Um, and so I'll just say, you know, that's what we do as, as lobbyists, but certainly um, I'm, I'm, you know, the grassroots director for national popular vote. And so I get people into the into their state capitals and say, hey, let's do a lobby day. Let, I'll help them set up meetings. Um, you know, if anyone you know listening to this, you wanted to take action right now, you could go to nationalpopularvote.com/write, which is W-R-I-T-E, and uh, you put in your zip code, and we'll take you to a form that uh, you fill it out with your address, and it has a an, a letter already drafted in there, but you can customize it yourself and it'll automatically go to your state senator, your state uh, house member and the governor. And in some cases, the secretary of state, depending on the state or the lieutenant governor. Um, and so it's easy to take those kinds of actions uh, or you can find their phone number and call them. You can show up at their town halls and say, hey, this is a really important issue to me and I wanna know where you stand on it. And if they don't have an opinion yet, then that's a great opportunity to say, hey, well, can I talk to you about it at some time? Can I get a meeting? Uh, because you know, it's not just lobbyists that should have access to their legislators. The legislators are there for the people uh, and you and everyone can and should be able to get meetings with those people just as easily as I can. One of the questions I have, just to go a little bit deeper into this, um, I guess my first question right off the bat, you mentioned one person, one vote. Does that tie into sort of a, I think, does that tie into a Supreme Court ruling or how does that play into kind of the, the theory as far as what that means? Um, yeah, yeah. So I, th I, big picture, I think it's like a democratic principle of that we should have one person, one vote. Um, it, the language does stem from a Supreme Court case, um, which interestingly, um, what in that ruling, uh, you know, it doesn't apply to the Electoral College uh, because the Electoral College is in the Constitution. So it's not something that we can apply that way. It's a little bit weird that way, but that doesn't mean that it shouldn't apply, that we can't make it apply through state laws to the Electoral College. And I guess for me, it's also, um, you know, a lot of times people will go, well, it's in the Constitution, or that's how the framers kind of had it in mind and stuff. One of the arguments that for the abolishment that I've heard is that it was originally sort of a pro-slavery tool. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, so absolutely. I mean, the, the, at, when the Constitution was being drafted, um, the states that were coming together, you know, it wasn't when they were discussing the presidency, this was one of the things that was the last things to be decided. They took over 30 votes on how the president should be selected um, over 22 days uh, because they just couldn't agree. And uh, some of that, a lot of that inherent struggle was from the fact that uh, northern states knew that if uh, the southern states where they had slaves were able to count the people that were enslaved as citizens, um, the same as, you know, property owning white men, then that would give them a much, much bigger uh, representation of electors. Um, so they applied uh, ultimately with the electoral system since it's based on your 435, or excuse me, not now it's 435, but at the time the Constitution's drafted, it's based on however many representatives you have in Congress. So two U.S. senators and then one elector for every House member. Um, so when coming up with that system, they had the three-fifths compromise where people who were enslaved and had no rights on, of their own were counted as three-fifths of a person 
for taxation purposes and also for representation in Congress and the Electoral College. Um, it was a compromise, a, a horrible compromise that was made at the time of our uh, nation's founding that, you know, has huge implications for our country now. Um, but certainly a, a big part of it was the fact that if that was not in place, um, you know, if slaves, people that were enslaved were either in, counted as zero, um, well, then the northern states would have probably been able to outlaw slavery pretty quickly, and the southern states wouldn't agree to that. On the flip side, uh, if the southern states were able to count those people as full people for representation purposes, they would have had a much larger population um, and been able to, you know, enshrine slavery even further and protect it for longer than it was. So this was the compromise that was made. Um, it definitely, you know, that's an argument for, I think, people abolishing the Electoral College. Um, you know, our organization advocates for reforming the Electoral College um, for a variety of reasons. Um, but, you know, personally, I like the idea of taking this institution and, and reforming it and making it so that we achieve one person, one vote, finally, uh, within this system. As we're talking about kind of like democratic systemic reforms or election reforms, do you have any thoughts on some of the other proposals that are floating around out there, like ranked choice voting or more specific reforms that apply to like local and state levels? Um, yeah, so specifically on ranked choice voting. Um, so a question we get a lot is, well, should there be ranked choice voting for president instead? Um, or do these two things work together? Um, and so when people are talking about those reforms, I, I like to say, you know, it's taking us over 200 years to change the way that we're reforming how we elect the president. And so to begin with, you know, a national popular vote gets us to that point of essentially the first past the post system that ranked choice voting advocates are trying to go beyond. And so um, the National Popular Vote Compact and ranked choice voting address different problems with our election, but they can work in a complementary fashion. Um, so before and until national popular vote is enacted, uh, ranked choice voting couldn't be used for presidential electors, for states to decide how their electors are chosen um, in determining the candidate that gets those electoral votes. And then once national popular vote is uh, activated, individual states that have ranked choice voting uh, can report out presidential votes for the purposes of determining um, and you know that votes that logically would be whoever got ranked one uh, on people's ballots. Um, and then once more states have enacted ranked choice voting for president, the electoral reform group Fair Vote uh, which is a big ranked choice voting organization, has suggested that those states enter into their own interstate compact um, to work in tandem with the national popular vote that would result in a ranked choice vote tally within those states that would report out the final round of numbers. Um, so they can work together. Um, and you know, our position as national popular vote, we just advocate for this one specific bill. Um, but, you know, certainly my personal opinion uh, is that other election reforms are, are beneficial and certainly should be looked at um, at the federal and state levels. I'll definitely be rewatching this recording to really grok everything you just said. But um, do you know of any other countries that have a similar system to what you're proposing? Uh, a, national, a direct election of the president? Yeah, I guess for presidential systems. Yeah, for the the leader. I mean, that's that's what's used by most democracies across the country, mm -hmm. um, honestly. And so I, I don't have, I mean, it's a lot. I, that seems kind of silly that I, now that I think of it, I don't have a list, but it's just so many of our democracies. Mm -hmm. That's how they choose the leader is whoever gets the most votes. Of course, there are some parliamentary systems, but those are very differently structured uh, in their way that they are represented. You know, we have the two-party system here. Um, so it's it's kind of, not fair to compare us to parliamentary systems where they have six or seven parties or more. You know, right. we just have two and somehow the person who gets less can become the president still. Yeah, it, one, one of my, I think one of the most effective arguments you can make is just saying like, everyone else does it and it works out fine. <laughs> so don't worry so much, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, and it's, we do it for every other race almost in the country. Like that's how we pick our senators and our house members and our governors and our mayors. Mm. It's not a foreign system. We've been using it 
for hundreds of years in other races and it's worked just fine. The other interesting thing too, and uh, by the way, the book I read kind of prior to our talk, Arlene, was uh, Let the People Pick the President by Jesse Wegman, if anyone wants to kind of read that. But one of the things that I was also unaware of is that uh, I guess in 1911 was the last time the House of Representatives actually expanded beyond the 435. And so I think right now, if they were to kind of follow the code, it should be like at 1500 or something. So one of the big things I think for our podcast too, and it ties into kind of what Hansi Freinick talks about in Nordic uh, ideology was, is demo, democrat, democratization politics. I'm not pronouncing that right. But then the idea of making sure people are empowered and, and their vote is heard. And one of the big things that caught my eye with, with that House of Rep is how many people aren't being represented equally in the House, therefore doesn't really count toward the electors and to making the the vote on the president. And I just thought that was interesting for the listeners just to, to know that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's an excellent book that just came out uh, in March of this year uh, that I would highly recommend people to check out. Um, it's the more uh, interesting and easy to read uh, case for our book than, or for our issue than the thousand page uh, textbook that we put out. So um, definitely recommend that book by Jesse Wegman, who's a member of the New York Times editorial board. And, and the other thing I, I didn't know too, and maybe you could talk a little bit about it, is what happens if uh, uh, a presidential candidate doesn't reach the 270 mark in the yes. electoral college? Yes, contingent elections, prepare to be frightened. Um, so, when, uh, if it comes to the, you know, election day and a presidential candidate does not reach a majority of the electoral college. So if it's tied 269 to 269, or if a third party candidate, uh, you know, successfully won a state and was able to take enough electors away from a, another candidate that no one reached 270, the uh, vote goes to the House of Representatives. And uh, so instead of just, you know, 538 people deciding who our president is, that number, uh, it doesn't go down to 435, it essentially goes down to 50. Because even though it goes to the House of Representatives, every state only has one vote. And so if your state is majority uh, Democratic, then your vote will probably go your vote will go to the Democratic candidate. If your vote is majority Republican in Congress, your vote will go to the Republican candidate. Uh, if your state is evenly divided, I believe Pennsylvania currently has 10 Democratic and 10 Republican senators, or excuse me, House members, uh, those two will probably uh, not be able to come to an agreement and there will be no vote from Pennsylvania. Um, and so it's a very undemocratic system uh, that I think probably might terrify people, I think, uh, is the fact that it could go down to just such a small number of people deciding uh, the election. Uh, and it's also something that even further disenfranchises DC because the District of Columbia, uh, while not yet a state, does have three electoral votes in the Electoral College. Um, however, if, the, if we have a contingent election that goes to the House of Representatives, they do not get a vote there. Yeah, I thought that was just pretty shocking. I guess what, the other thing too, I mean, is do you consider if we're ruled sort of because Donald Trump didn't get the most kind of popular votes, do you consider that sort of an oligarchy, sort of a government ruled by a minority or what are your personal thoughts on that? Um, yeah, the minority coming into power and being able to have the rule of the executive branch is not something that I think uh, is how we should run our country moving forward. You know, um, some of the arguments that you see, uh, you know, Dan Crenshaw, who's a member of Congress, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, kind of went back and forth on this uh, on Twitter, maybe last year, maybe 2018, um, about, you know, majority rule versus minority rule. But I certainly don't think it was the intention of the founders or, you know, a good system for us that 47% or 46% or 45% of the country can rule over 51, 52, 53% of the country. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so yeah, I mean, it's, it's this basic fundamental democratic principle that whoever gets the most votes should win. Uh, and 
when we have someone in the White House who didn't ascend that way, I think that causes a lot of problems and a lot of unrest, um, you know, especially as we're seeing right now across the country. I think that those things would be lessened if people felt like when they went and cast their ballots, they knew that if they got enough other Americans to agree with them, that person would become the president. Because it's, I think that there's just something inherently that sits wrong with people when you think, what, we got more people to agree with us and we still didn't win over the executive branch? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I agree. It definitely seems, I remember first reading about this, you know, back in government class in high school and just thinking, it doesn't make sense. And, and you know, just sort of, you know, what you see play out sort of over the last 20 years and um, just kind of how it's all come about is, it's definitely an interesting debate and conversation to have. And I think one of the things in this talk that I hope it does is promote democratic principles. And I know while we're also a democracy and a republic, just how those two kind of come together and um, obviously more on the side of uh, democracy on how it should represent uh, the majority. Um, so what does your uh, future look like with this campaign and some goals that you have um, and where, where can people find you? Yeah, um, I do want to say, if I can, just one thing about the democracy versus republic uh, issue before I answer that question. Yeah, of um, course. So, yeah, I mean, what we are is a representative democracy. We select people to represent us. You know, we're not advocating for a direct democracy where every single person votes on every single issue. So we're still a republic because we're, we're choosing people to elect us, you know, through uh, the election of the president. We're just saying that it should be done a little bit differently. So just, you know, have a representative democracy that represents us slightly better uh, is what we're advocating for. I think that that's something that sometimes people get a little bit uh, hung up on. And, uh, you know, sometimes those political science terms sound a little bit different. You, you don't know necessarily the exact definition. So uh, we are a republic, which means we're a representative democracy. Um, for our campaign goals, so where you can find us, um, our website is nationalpopularvote.com. Um, that is uh, meant to be a resourceful website for uh, learning all about national popular vote. Um, the, a lot of the answers to the questions that we get the most are on there. Um, so it's definitely meant to be uh, like a resource for people for learning more about national popular vote. If you want to get involved, um, if you know, you're in a state that has not yet passed this bill, please sign up to get involved. You can go to nationalpopularvote.com slash volunteer. Um, and sign up and what you do, happens when you do that, uh, you get connected with me and we will get you plugged in, whether you're in a state uh, where we wanna pass the bill, we'll connect you with the grassroots organization in your state, uh, or if there's not anyone yet, maybe you're from Wyoming. I don't think I have any volunteers in Wyoming, but if you wanna be the first, I'll work with you to start up a grassroots organization and start building up support in your state. Um, we are, you know, Whenever things get back to normal with COVID, uh, we'll be, I'll be traveling around more and doing more education across the country. But in the meantime, um, working with groups, you know, in Pennsylvania and North Carolina and uh, Florida and all across the U.S. to um, educate people about the bill now and, and get them so that they're geared up and ready to lobby for this. Uh, as citizens in their state legislature, whenever uh, the bill comes up, hopefully, you know, it's going to come up in a lot of states next year. Um, of course, you know, the usual ways you can find us, uh, National Popular Vote on Facebook and on Twitter um, to engage with us online there. Um, but certainly I would encourage people if you want to get involved to volunteer uh, because it can be anything. And there, there's so many ways that you can take action. You can one time write a letter to your legislators. That's, that's getting involved. You can call your legislators. Um, you can go to their town halls and find out where they stand on this issue. Um, and, or you can get really involved and, you know, get other people together and say, hey, this is my book club, but I really want to take 10 minutes of our next meeting to talk about national popular vote because this is a really critical issue. Um, there's no one in the country that this bill does not affect. Uh, so you can plead your case to your friends and your family across the country and let them know that this is something that they can advocate for in their states. Um, and even, you know, if you're in a state that has already passed it, we have lots of ways for you to get involved by helping with phone banking um, or sometimes letter writing campaigns to constituents in other states. Uh, and of course, always talking to your family and friends.
Awesome. Well, Eileen, thank you so much for coming on today. And I'll just share for myself. I have, this is always something I've been for, especially after 2016. Like as Matt was saying, our current system never made sense. I had a few concerns, but I think you were very convincing and very persuasive. So now I'm 100% on board with this and we'll do everything I can to join the movement and spread the word. So thank you so much for your time today. Awesome. Thank you, Ryan. I'm so glad we turned you into a supporter. <laughs> and Eileen, I, I, another, I had one question pop up in my head as you were uh, doing your final summary there. Is there any concern mm -hmm. that this, uh, for example, could pass and it could get to the Supreme Court and they would shoot it down as not being constitutional? Um, I mean, no, we know that as soon as this bill reaches the 270 threshold, this is America, it's going to be litigated immediately. We're going to get lawsuits six ways from Sunday. Um, but we're prepared for that. And we're going to go to the Supreme Court and make our case. Um, the only, uh, so we're not, we're not concerned about that because it's a, the Supreme Court has already ruled that it's a plenary exclusive power of the states to decide how they award their electors. The only thing that could be a potential hiccup uh, that we get questions about, um, it's gonna take me a, a minute to explain this if that's okay. Um, yeah, so the, it, the interstate compact part of it. Um, so the constitution says that uh, all compacts between states must be approved by Congress. However, there has been over a hundred years of Supreme Court precedence that says that uh, congressional consent is only required for compacts that encroach upon federal supremacy. So you can't get into a, an agreement between states if it's something that's traditionally about a federal power. Um, we're not concerned about that because uh, this is something that's an exclusive power of the states. However, if the Supreme Court decides to overrule 100 years of Supreme Court precedents and decide that we need to get congressional consent, that's okay. We will then turn around and go get congressional consent the same way that we've lobbied for this bill in every state across the country. Um, so, and it's not the norm to get congressional consent before your bill, an interstate compact um, is in effect. Um, so we would just do that if the Supreme Court decided that we needed to do it. And would that just be a 51% or a, a majority, not the 67 senators? Is that? Yeah, just a simple majority. Okay. Awesome. Well, Eileen, thank you so much for being on our show and, and um, good luck in the future with the campaign. And thank you very much. All right. Thank you both so much for having me. Take care. Great. Thank, thank you. you.